my batteries were low in my microphone pack before I came into the service this morning, so I changed them, and I didn't check the ones that I put in there until I turned them on as the offertory song began, and they didn't work, so obviously they were dead, and in a rush, figuring I had two minutes, that's about the offertory, I burst through these doors only to find that Lo had her nose stuck like this on the door, and so we might need to pray for Lo this morning. Glenn and KJ had the two women up front at the doors peeking in, and they were standing behind them. So I did find some batteries that work, or at least apparently they work. And with that, knowing you can hear me, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. This morning, unless something very unexpected happens, we are going to finish up Roman numeral 6 and our outline of 1 Peter, which is a theology of suffering. And by that, by now, I hope you know, since I've said it in every message, that a theology of suffering means... A biblical understanding of suffering. Believing about suffering in our lives and the lives of others, what the Bible teaches us to believe about that suffering. That's what this entire section of 1 Peter is about. And it runs, it's the longest section in the book. This theme of suffering dominates virtually the latter half of the book from chapter 3, verse 18, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the last section of the book before we will come to the conclusion next Sunday morning uh, in those last few verses. Let me remind you of what we've learned so far in this theology of suffering. Four lessons. First, we've learned that a theology of suffering begins with understanding the suffering of Christ. That was verse or chapter 3, verse 18 through verse 22. And when I say that it begins with understanding the suffering of Christ, I mean that we will never understand our suffering and suffering in the world until we understand the suffering of Christ. Our suffering, suffering in general, is connected to His suffering. The second lesson that we've learned is that a theology of suffering is necessary for those who live for the Lord. And it is a necessity for believers because living for the Lord involves... Suffering. It invites suffering. We saw that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The third lesson that we've studied is that a theology of suffering enables us to rejoice in our suffering. And we're able to rejoice even as we suffer, not because of the suffering, but in and through the suffering 
Because this biblical understanding of suffering teaches us the purposes of suffering. And we saw that in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And then the fourth lesson that we've studied is that a theology of suffering is the responsibility of pastors. It's the responsibilities of those who shepherd the sheep within the flock to instruct them on what the Bible says about the subject of suffering. It's their responsibility to give to the sheep a theology of suffering. And we saw that in chapter 5, verses 1 through the first part of verse 5. And that brings us, or at least it brought us last Sunday morning to the fifth and final lesson in this theology of suffering. And we're going to continue with it today, but before we do, I want us to read once again our passage that begins in the second sentence of verse 5, and we'll go on down through verse 11. It says there in verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This fifth lesson in our theology of suffering that we find in these verses is this. Uh, We began again to talk about it last Sunday morning. We learn here that a theology of suffering instructs us to be humble. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble. By that I mean a biblical understanding of suffering teaches us, it directs us, it commands us to be humble in our suffering, to be humble As we suffer. And I told you last Sunday morning that in the passage we find three directions for us to be humble or three aims towards which we are to exhibit humility. We talked about the first two of those last week. First we saw that a theology of suffering instructs us to be humble Towards each other. 
That's what we saw in verse 5. That every one of us, shepherds and sheep alike, spiritual elders in the flock and spiritual youngers in the flock, both, all of us, each of us, are to clothe ourselves with humility. Do you remember how this passage defined humility for us? It didn't say, here's what humility means. But it defined humility for us by showing us the contrast for humble there in verse 5. Do you remember what the contrast of humility there in verse verse 5 is? Pride. Or the opposite of humble there in verse 5 is to be proud. So in our relations with one another in the church, especially as we suffer because suffering tends to bring out the worst in us, we are to clothe ourselves with the opposite of, of pride towards one another. It's in our suffering that We're to realize our own need the most and therefore our need for God and our need for others the most. So the first direction for us to be humble is we're to be humble towards each other. And we're to do this because verse 5 taught us that God opposes the proud. He works against the proud while He gives grace to the humble. He favors the humble. He works on behalf of those who acknowledge their need, specifically their need for Him. Once more, the first direction for us to be humble is we are to be humble towards each other. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards each other. We also talked last Sunday morning about the second direction in which we're to be humble. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards Satan. And maybe you remember that I told you that humility towards Satan is not going to look like humility towards others. When I say that we're to be humble towards Satan, I mean that we are to see him as a mighty foe. And then from the passage, I showed you that, I showed you three things that humility towards Satan would involve. First, it would involve watching. Right? That's the word. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. That means be on the lookout. Be aware of the fact that we have an adversary. His name is Satan. The second thing that humility towards Satan would involve is knowing. And I showed you from the passage what it teaches us about Satan. Because the first rule of war is know your enemy. And it teaches us all about him, comparing him to a prowling, roaring lion who seeks to devour those who call themselves Christians in their suffering and the way that he would ultimately devour one who is identified as a Christian is to have them in their suffering to give up, to quit, to fall away from the faith and really to demonstrate that they weren't a real Christian at all. 
And then the third thing that's involved in being humble towards Satan is resisting. Resist him, it says here. That means don't roll over and give up. Fight back. And the way that we fight back is by being firm in our faith. Not giving in. That's how He wants to devour you. Not giving up. Not falling away. We resist Him by remaining firm in the faith. And we can remain firm in the faith because there in verse 9 it said, You're not the only one in this boat. We're not the only ones who are having this experience of suffering. The brotherhood all around the world of believers experiences this suffering. And it not only applies to the brotherhood that exists in the world today, but it applies to a brotherhood that goes back for thousands of years. The people of God during this lifetime have always been a suffering people. Now that brings us to where we pick up this morning. It's the third direction towards which we are to be humble. We find here that our theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards God. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble towards God. Now, that's the third direction in our outline, right? But I want to make this real clear. When it comes to directions for you to be humble, this may be third in our outline. That's because I was saving the best for last. The most important for last. Its position as third in the outline doesn't mean that's to be its position in the reality of our lives. The very first direction towards which we should be humble is towards God. Real humility begins with humility towards God. We will never be humble towards each other if we're not humble first towards God. We will never have a proper respect towards Satan, humility if you will, towards him, if we're not first humble towards God. Humility towards each other and even humility towards Satan begins with humility towards God. Now look at what verse 6 says about our being humble towards the Lord. It says there, humble yourselves, therefore. Whenever you read the word therefore, what are you supposed to do? Back, go backwards, right? You're supposed to figure out what it's there for. Okay, so it's commanding us in verse 6 to be humble... Why? Because of what the end of verse 5 said. What did it say? Do you remember? Really well known, really important. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So then comes the command, humble yourselves, therefore. That is, we are to humble ourselves because we now understand, we've now been taught in verse 5, 
that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble, and we want grace, don't we? I mean, you're, you would really have to be the, the height of foolish to say, I don't want God to favor me. I don't want God to work on my behalf. I don't want God to be for me. I want God to be against me. That's utter foolishness. So therefore, we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time, He may exalt you. We are to be humble towards God as we suffer under His mighty hand. Any of you grow up getting swatted by a parent's hand? Did any of you happen to have a parent, maybe a father, who had hands like meat hooks? I'm looking at Ron Evers. This man has the biggest hands of any human I've ever met. And that's only because I never met Andre the Giant. His hands are bigger than Ron's. But outside of Andre the Giant, Ron has the biggest hands that I've ever seen. When I shake hands with Ron, I feel like a wee little man. And every time I shake hands with him, I feel sorry for Josh, and I feel sorry for Chase. Because if he ever, ever laid those big hands on their backsides, they're probably still walking around crooked. Now think about that imagery of a mighty hand. A mighty hand. God, of all, would have the mightiest, most powerful, most intimidating of hands, right? Out of all the hands that there are, the hand of God would be the hand that is capable of unleashing the most devastation, the most powerful effects and, and consequences. It says we are to humble ourselves towards God even as we suffer under His mighty hand. And we've already learned in this theology of suffering and the prior parts of 1 Peter that it's God who inflicts discipline upon us, right? That with the coming of Christ, the first time He came to enact judgment, to cleanse the world, but His judgment and the cleansing began with His own people. All of us as the children of God have been swatted, if you will, by the mighty hand of God. And we all could testify that it's not a fun experience, right? It hurts. It's very painful. 
It is this mighty hand of God that subjects us to suffering. That pushes us towards suffering. It's the mighty hand of God that places us under intense suffering. We are to humble ourselves under that mighty hand. So I want you to get the picture in your mind. If my phone, which I use to keep up with time, by the way, and you're wanting to get me a new phone about this time. If my phone is us, and this is the mighty hand of God, the picture is of God, at least in part, pressing His mighty hand on us. And as He is doing that, when it says that we are to humble ourselves, it means that we're not to fight back. That we're not to squirm like children are apt to do. That we're not to try to break away. Does that give you a good idea of what this verse is communicating? We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. It means that we're not to respond in pride. Because remember, pride is the, the opposite of humility, right? So I want you to think with me about what responding in pride towards God as we suffer would look like. Do you suppose that it would be prideful for us as we suffer to respond to God with surprise? Isn't that addressed earlier in this book? First chapter, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. That's sort of prideful for us to respond to God with, What's up, God? Why me? What's going on here? This isn't fair. There are a lot of other more deserving people for suffering than me. I can't believe you would allow this to come into my life. That's responding in pride to the mighty hand of God. You take it a step further, responding in pride to suffering would, would be getting angry at God, not just surprised, questioning God, but getting angry at God. God, I'm upset with you. And then you take it a step further and that initial anger doesn't go away and responding in pride to the mighty hand of God would involve growing bitter, wouldn't it? Not just an initial anger towards God or a, a short-term anger towards God, but anger that festers towards God. Do you know any people that have grown bitter towards God? And then it may go even further than that and, and that person begins to blame God and seek to get back at God. To punish God, if you will. I'll show you, God, I'm not going to love you anymore. I'm not going to follow you anymore. I'm not going to believe in any of the stuff that, 
that I've learned about you anymore. I'm turning my back on the faith. And at that point, what's happened to that person? They've been devoured by Satan, right? The line that's come against them has devoured them, and he has won, and they have lost. And they haven't just lost, they've lost forever. Don't respond in pride to the mighty hand of God. Instead, in humility, we trust Him. Parents, do you have any experience with giving your kids medicine? Or giving your animals medicine? Perhaps carrying them to a doctor or a vet who's going to give them a shot? What are we trying to communicate to them when they're fighting back? We're doing this to help you. You're sick. You need this to get well. Trust mama. Trust dad. The dog must be hearing it like the teacher in Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. But we're talking to the dog, right? Just like you can You can trust me. I know the bed has a big needle he's about to shoot in you, but it's good for you. Well, this is really what it boils down to here. Instead of responding in pride, we aren't children and we aren't animals. We are born again believers in Christ filled with the Spirit of God, recipients of the Word of God, and God is saying to us in words that we should understand, I know this doesn't feel good right now, but trust me. Don't squirm. Don't fight back. Trust me. And so rather than responding in in pride... We trust God. We accept His wisdom like a child who figures out mom and dad are smarter about these things than I am, so I'm going to trust mom and dad. Like that child, that rare child, by the way. We should be that child, those children who say, I don't know what's going on. But I trust God. He is way smarter than me. We submit to Him. James 4, 7. I told you last week that James 4 in the middle part is a parallel passage to the one that we're looking at now. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Why? Because we can trust Him. Because He gives grace to the humble. Those that trust Him. Those that don't fight back. Those that aren't making the discipline twice as bad as it's intended to be. Because they won't humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Alright. Now I don't, I've been going about that amount of time where maybe you're hearing me like the dog hears us. Or like we hear Charlie Brown's teacher. So... I don't want you, I want you to zone me back in where you're hearing me speaking the language I'm speaking in, which is English. I don't want you to, to miss this now. 
We've been talking about the mighty hand of God judging or disciplining us, to be more precise. But I would suggest to you that the phrase mighty hand of God here is not primarily about God hurting us. Instead, though that might be part of it, and it is, otherwise I wouldn't have talked about it, Instead, I would tell you that based on the context here, especially based on what immediately follows it, and based on the way that phrase, mighty hand of God, is used in the Old Testament, and it's used a whole lot there, that primarily, rather than talking about the mighty hand of God hurting us, it wants us to see that this mighty hand of God is helping us us. Because after he talks about the mighty hand of God and our humbling ourselves under it, what does it speak about God doing for us? Exalting us. And I'll give you a a synonymous phrase for exalting us. The mighty hand of God not only presses against us, the mighty hand of God also lifts us up. We sang a song about it this morning. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. And the Savior heard my despairing cries, and what did He do? He didn't push me under with His mighty hand. He lifted me up with His mighty hand. With His mighty hand of love, He lifted me up. This is the first reason of three given in this passage that we are to follow the instruction to be humble towards God. We are to be humble towards God first because He lifts us up. Look again at verse 6. Humble yourselves Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, or so that at the proper time He may lift you up. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because He lifts us up. He exalts us or He will exalt us. In the future, He will lift us up. But what comes first? Suffering. Suffering, why? That's what this whole part of 1 Peter is about. It's the pattern of the entire book. First comes suffering, then glory. First comes the crucifixion, then the resurrection. First comes pain, then purity. First comes humiliation, then exaltation. First comes judgment. Then reward. That's the pattern, and that's all language from First Peter that we've already studied. Every bit of that. We want the lifting up, but first comes the suffering. Again, James 4, which is a parallel passage to this in verse 10, says... Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. 
Let me add a word and see if it helps you understand it better. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and this is the implication, and then He will exalt you. Where do we humble ourselves before the Lord? In the suffering. And then He will exalt us. And then in the the verses prior to James 4.10, verses 8 and 9, He shows us how we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. It says, cleanse your hands. One of the reasons that we would respond in pride to suffering under the mighty hand of God is we think we're far better than what we really are. That's where we come up with, I don't deserve this, I'm surprised, God, how could you do this to me? Every one of us, as Calvin says, is biased in our own favor. Even those of you that are the most aware of your flaws, you still in your sin, just like I am, and biased in our own favor. We always tend to think that we're better or not as sinful as we really are. And so the way that we humble ourselves in our suffering is to look within our lives for sin, which is always there, that the suffering exposes and gives us an opportunity to rid ourselves of that sin. James 4, 8 and 9 also says we're to purify our hearts. The way that we naturally respond to suffering with pride towards God, the fighting back, the kicking and the screaming, the squirming, that reveals that our hearts are impure, right? And so when we start thinking that way and reacting that way, we're to purify our hearts and say, God, my heart is full of wickedness. That's why I'm thinking this way. James 4, 8 and 9 says we're to mourn and to weep. Not simply because we're suffering, but because of sin in our life. Are falling short repeatedly of the glory of God. And I'll tell you this. When you cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and when you mourn and weep, that is humiliation. That's humbling of ourselves. But here's the thing. If we'll do that necessary humiliation, God will then bring into our life exaltation. He will lift us up. It says there in verse 6 that He will do it at the proper time. Now some people take that to mean that if I'm going through a rough patch in life, that 1 Peter 5, 8 means if I act humble during this time, that at some point in the near future, God's really going to lift me up and, and raise me, exalt me in this lifetime. Perhaps that will happen. But this verse isn't a guarantee of this. Some of you Alabama fans will remember this. 1994, Jay Barker's our quarterback. We played against Georgia. Their quarterback was Eric Zire. He was a really good quarterback. Went on to the NFL. They played us in a Saturday night game in Bryant, Denny, and Tuscaloosa. And Jay Barker, who never had been a good passer, remember we won the national championship in 92, and I think he passed for 13 yards in the national championship game or something, you know, Throwing the ball was a, a sin under Gene Stallings and Coach Moore, K.J., would know so well. 
So Barker comes out and, and Zyre's come out and he's passing and they're ahead of us and Barker leads us to a comeback and I mean, he threw the ball all over the field. And they interview him after the game and the first words out of his mouth are 1 Peter 5, 8. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and in due time He will lift you up. And I, I love Jay Barker and I think what he was suggesting was, hey, I, <laughs> I've been humble as I've struggled and God has chosen to lift me up. And it very well may be that that's what happened there. But I'm not doing you a favor if I don't tell you that every one of our stories doesn't end up like Jay Barker's on that night. This verse is not a guarantee that if you've been struggling, that God's going to put you in the limelight and let you lead your favorite team or your favorite business to great success and victory over all of your enemies. Instead... The phrase at the proper time isn't left for us to debate its meaning. We've already seen phrases like this throughout the book of First Peter. What do you think the proper time, proper time is a reference to? The last time. When Jesus comes again. Again, the whole pattern of First Peter is to place our hope... Not on the fact that God promises to lift us up in this lifetime. He might. But the guarantee of full lifting up and exaltation is one that is only guaranteed at the return of Christ. Chapter 1 verse 5 talked about the last time. We've seen more recently a phrase like when the glory of Christ is revealed. Verse 10 talks about when it's going to be. Look at it. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, a little while isn't a reference to a week or two weeks. It's a reference to this life, which seems like a long while, right? But it's just a little while. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, remember God gives grace to the humble. He favors the humble. The God who favors the who are humble the very one who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, called as He worked in your heart and mind to show you what you were and draw you effectively to repentance and faith in Christ. And He hasn't just done that to get you started on the journey and to abandon you, but what has He called you to? To eternal glory in Christ. The very one who has done this, after a little while will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I would tell you that fully that's going to take place when Christ comes back. And what it means is, whatever we have lost in this lifetime, it will be restored and far more on top of it. Our suffering and our struggle will one day be over. So this is the first reason that we follow the instruction to be humble towards God because He lifts us up, or He will. And that if we don't humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we fight and scream and we eventually run away, there is no promise of being lifted up. Alright, now let me give you a second reason we should follow the command to be humble towards God. He cares for us. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. 
Listen, brothers and sisters, I know this is tempting to think when we suffer. The temptation is to think, why does God dislike me so much? Why does God hate me? Why does God hate my family? Why does God hate my area of the world? Believer, God doesn't hate you. God cares for you far more deeply than you can comprehend. He takes care of you. So that every one of us is relieved of the feeling that we have that we have to take care of ourselves. But we don't have to take care of ourselves. God cares for us. I think that's one of the reasons that we find it so hard to care for others and be focused on others. Because in the back of our mind, the thought is, well, if if I'm focused on them, who's going to be looking out for me? I've got plenty going on. Christian, you can be relieved of that thought. God takes care of you so that we can take care of others. And just as He's taking care of them, so that they can take care of others. God's not against us. What have we already seen in this passage? He's for us. He favors us. And because of this, rather than worrying, rather than being anxious, rather than being afraid, we cast all our anxieties, all of the things that cause us to be anxious, worried, fearful, we cast all of them on Him. Because He cares for us. And He cares about our cares. In fact, casting all our anxieties on God is how we humble ourselves. You look back at verses 6 and 7 and it becomes clear. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And then verse 7 is not a new sentence. It tells us how we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Casting all your anxieties on Him. That's how we humble ourselves. It's not ignoring that there are things that make us anxious. Look, that's lying. That's lying to ourselves. I'll tell you, there are things that make me anxious and there are things that make you anxious too. But what we do, the way that we humble ourselves is not by pretending they don't exist. We cast those anxieties on God, right? Did you know that carrying anxieties is an issue of pride? We don't think about it this way often. But if you're the person who is most fretful, most subject to worry, most afraid, I'm going to say this as gently as I can and I say it in love, your heart and your mind's full of pride. The pride that says, I have to take care of all of this. The weight of this all is on me. It's extremely proud to suggest that God doesn't have it. That God doesn't know about it. That God can't take care of it. So I've got to do what I've got to do to take care of it. And that is letting it rot a hole in my gut. 
which, by the way, accomplishes nothing in terms of rectifying whatever it is that causes you to be anxious in the first place. Brothers and sisters, every one of us that struggle with anxieties and fears, let's acknowledge it for what it really is. We think we're God. Or in that situation, we think we've got to be God. And we're not, and we can't be. Instead of carrying our anxieties, did you see what the passage says we're to do? We're to cast our anxieties. There's a word for all my fishermen friends. KJ and Wayne, Holly and my boys that love to fish and some of the rest of you. There's your word. Instead of carrying our anxieties, we we cast our anxieties on the Lord, okay? So I want you to imagine that you've got a spiritual fishing pole, and when you're anxious, you get that thing out and you cast those anxieties on the Lord. Don't carry them. That's where we're guilty. We're carrying anxieties, and God has told us, I never intended you to carry that load. Give it to me. Cast your anxieties, every one of them on me. The origin of this verse is the 55th Psalm, verse 22, which says, Cast your burden on the Lord. That's what anxieties are. It's a better picture. They're burdens. Burdens a load. What does toting a load around make you feel like? Right? Smaller and smaller. You're like a Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. And folks, the greatest scene in the book is when he comes to the cross and his burden is removed. God says, cast all your anxieties on me. I will sustain you. I will never, Psalm 55, he will never permit the righteous to be moved. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that we talked about on Wednesday night a few weeks ago puts it this way, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That Those verses give us a beautiful picture of our casting our anxieties on God and God giving us His peace alleviating that burden from our lives. James 4, again, that parallel passage to the one we're studying this morning in verse 8 says it this way, Draw near to God. And as we suffer, the way we draw near to Him is say, God, here's what bothers me. Here's what I'm anxious about. Here's what I'm afraid about. I'm casting my anxieties on You. If we'll do that and draw near to God, you know what the rest of the the verse says. What does it say? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The second reason we follow the instruction to be humble towards God, He cares for us. Our third reason, this is a short one, He rules over us. That's why we're to be humble towards God. He rules over us, and for that matter, He rules over everyone and everything else. Verse 11 is where I take this from. It says, To Him, to this One, who's called you to eternal glory in Christ, 
to this God of all grace, to this One who in the future at the proper time when Christ comes again will restore and establish and confirm and strengthen you. To this One be dominion, be rule. That's the word for dominion. To this One be the rule forever and ever. Amen. That's why we follow the instruction to be humble towards God. Because God is over us. And He's over everyone. And He's over everything. And if you're not humble towards Him, you are destroying yourself, not just now, but forever. You're sealing your fate. Peter, at this point, is so overcome that he bursts forth in what we would call doxology. Not praise God from whom all blessings flow, but doxology in the the similar vein. He burst forth in worship because God, even as we suffer, listen brothers and sisters, even as we suffer, God is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. For it is this undefeatable hope that sustains us even as we suffer. And that hope is tied to Him. If we don't have Him, we have no hope. We have Him, we have hope. He is worthy of worship and praise. The third reason then we're to follow the instruction to be humble towards God. He cares for us. He rules over us. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble in our suffering. Humble towards each other. A proper understanding of humility towards Satan. And right from the get-go to be humble towards God. Last week I asked you some questions to help you diagnose whether you respond in your suffering with humility or pride. The questions I asked last week were in regards to uh, whether we respond in humility or pride towards each other or towards Satan. So today, since we've talked about humility towards God, let me give you two sets of questions to help you and me evaluate whether we're responding to God as we suffer in humility or pride? Do you respond to suffering like, God, I need you? Or more like, God, I'm mad at you? One is pride and one is humility. Is your response to suffering, God, I trust you, or God, I question you? One is humility, one is pride. A theology of suffering instructs us to be humble. And we better get it right towards God. Otherwise, we'll never get it right towards anybody or anything else. Humble yourselves now, 
God in grace gives you that opportunity. If you don't humble yourselves now, you know that there is coming a day, a later day, where God will humble you. In this passage on humility, we talked last week about humility being poor in spirit, seeing yourself as a spiritual beggar. Do you do that? Do you see yourself as one who needs what only God can give and you're not too proud to admit it and ask Him for it? Do you see yourself as that one who's entirely dependent on God to supply what you need, beginning with what you need spiritually? Do you see your need for God? Do you see your need for grace? Let suffering teach you that, your need. Has there ever been a time in your life where you called out to God for Him to save you, to forgive you, to give you eternal life? If there has not, this day, humble yourselves before the Lord. Call on His name. Call on the name of Christ Jesus our Lord, and He will save you. He will forgive you of all your sins. He will grant you eternal life. Turn from your sin. Turn from your walking away from God in life. Turn from your not trusting on Jesus to make you right with God. And trust on Christ. Follow Him in faith. He has done what needs to be done to save you. He's lived the perfect life that you need to count for you. He's died to pay the price for sins that you need. He's risen to conquer death, which you can't do. He will forgive you and give you eternal life if you will turn from your sins and trust on what He's done and who He is as Lord and Savior. I'd love to talk with you about it anytime, whether during the invitation or after church you find me. This week you find me, you talk to me. If you have turned from your sins and are trusting on Jesus to save you, brothers and sisters, you keep on. You persevere. Remember what I consider to be the most memorable part of this passage. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, He will lift us up. That's a theology of suffering. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?